0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcast, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. The text for our message this morning will come from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28. These are the words of God. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. God and Father, we come to you asking that you would feed us by your word through the Holy Spirit, that we would be made strong and wise and courageous and joyous in the service of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse, and one of the most confusing things about the Olivet Discourse and other prophetic passages in the New Testament is that they refer to two different comings of the Lord. One in the first century, when Jesus would come in historic judgment on apostate Jerusalem, and the other on the last day when Jesus will come in final judgment upon the resurrection of the dead. Some passages speak about the first, some passages speak about the second, and some may possibly speak about both. The result is it can be quite confusing for disciples of Jesus. Now keep in mind that the Greek word for coming that is often used in these passages, the word parousia, was a common, everyday word that literally means presence. Parousia literally means presence. And so in 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul says that the Corinthians were disparaging him by saying that his letters are powerful, but his bodily presence, parousia, is weak. And by extension, parousia was used to mean coming or arrival, for if there was someone who was not present, for them to become present, they had to come or to arrive. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17, Paul says that he is glad about the coming, parousia, of Stephanas. And as we saw last week when we looked at apocalyptic language in the Old Testament, the coming of the Lord, also the day of the Lord, were both used to describe God coming near to judge a particular nation or a city, historically speaking. And we looked last week as an, at an example from Isaiah chapter 13 which prophesies the military conquest of Babylon by the Medes, which was fulfilled in the 6th century BC. That was the coming of the Lord On Babylon, that was the day of the Lord for Babylon. That is when the sun and the moon ceased to shine for Babylon. That is when God shook the earth for Babylon and purged its sinners from the land. That was the nature of the apocalyptic language that God used to describe not the last day, but historic events which we know were fulfilled in the 6th century B.C., So if we come to the New Testament from the Old, like Jesus' Jewish disciples in the first century, we will not automatically take Jesus' references to his coming or to the day of the Lord as referring to his return on the last day. We will, as the Old Testament teaches us, use the context of Jesus' remarks to determine whether he is talking about his coming to judge the world on the last day, or his coming in history to judge a particular nation or city. Now as modern evangelicals we automatically tend to assume that all references to the coming of Christ or to the day of the Lord are referring to events still in the future and that they pertain to the last stages of human history, either to the return of Jesus on the last day or to the more modern dispensational, uh, innovational teaching of a special, partial return of Jesus to rapture the church 1,000 years before the last day. But the, the evangelical tendency, the modern evangelical majority view, pushes everything to the end. It pushes everything to the future, to the second advent of Christ. Now, there is another view, which is a much smaller view, but I need to point it out because it makes the opposite mistake. And this is a much smaller group that is known as full preterists. Preterists means that they, they understand the prophecies as having been already fulfilled. The group called full preterists are ones who believe that all of the New Testament prophecies including all of the comings of Jesus Christ, all references to the day of the Lord, were fulfilled in the first century, so that there is now no coming or return of Jesus in the future. So the modern evangelical majority of view pushes everything to the end. It is all pushed off to the second advent of Christ. The full preterist view sucks everything to the beginning. It says it was all fulfilled in the first century, and now there's nothing yet to be fulfilled. Now, I don't believe either of these views is what the Bible teaches. I think both are mistaken, but I want to be very clear about something here. The full preterist view is by far the greater error. It is by far the greater error, okay? Pushing everything to the end, to the second coming of Christ is, I think, an error. I think it's mistaken. But it does not, it does not put one outside the historic Christian faith. I think it causes trouble. I think it causes mischief. I think it causes misunderstanding. I think it has led, in large part, to the radical dichotomy that the modern evangelical church sees between spiritual and earthly And thinking that Jesus now speaks to us spiritually and speaks to us about things in our heart and speaks to us about forgiveness of sin and going to heaven when we die. But he doesn't say anything directly to the public square or to the nations or to politics or economics because he's not claiming those things. He's only interested in spiritual things now. All of that mischief results in large part from pushing all of the prophecies off Until the end. So I think it causes mischief. But believing that does not put one outside the historic Christian faith. It is not a denial of the faith. Full preterism, on the other hand, is. It puts one outside the historic Christian faith, that is, sucking all the prophecies into the first century and saying they're all fulfilled. There is no second coming of the Lord Jesus still to look for. There is no final judgment to look forward. There is no final resurrection of the just and the damned. That puts one outside the historic Christian faith. It puts one outside all of the historic Christian faiths. Cre- uh, creeds of the church going all the way back to the Apostles' Creed. But what does the Apostles' Creed say? It says that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That is what the church has confessed based on the teachings of Scripture from the very beginning. Now, I believe, though, that the correct view is what has been called partial preterism, which is simply a fancy way of saying that Christ will bodily return on the last day to bring about the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment of the world, as confessed in the historic creeds, but that he also foretells in the New Testament prophecies A historic coming, not a bodily return, but a coming in the Old Testament sense in judgment on apostate Jerusalem in the first century. A judgment that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and its famous temple in 70 AD. Consider verses such as Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, where Jesus. In response to the apostles pointing out all the magnificence of the temple and how great and magnificent its stones were, Jesus says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus speaks similarly. He comes to Jerusalem, he sees the city, and he weeps upon, over it. He says, "...if you had simply known the time of your peace, but you didn't recognize it, and now it is hidden from your eyes." And he says this, "...the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you." That's referring to the old siege walls that a a sieging army would make around a walled city. "...they will make an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. They will level you and your children within you to the ground." and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. That is precisely what happened in 70 AD when the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to the city, and eventually took it, and they literally drug down the temple. Every stone uh, was taken down, and the city was left in rubbles. Now, as I say, the New Testament prophesies, I believe, two different comings, two different days of the Lord, and is it important that we keep them straight? Now, last week, we looked at an example of Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 13, talking about the military conquest of Babylon. We saw that there God uses the same kind of language that seems to be talking about the last day. It seems to be talking about the judgment of the world. It seems to be talking about the end of the universe and the taking apart of the cosmos in order to refer to a judgment on Babylon. So what that means is this. When we're coming to these different prophetic passages and we're trying to keep them straight, The presence of apocalyptic language itself, apocalyptic language like the sun will not shine and the moon will not give her light and the stars will fall from heaven. Okay, that's apocalyptic language. The presence of apocalyptic language itself does not tell us whether Jesus or one of the prophets or apostles is referring to a historic judgment on a particular nation or whether he's talking about the final return of Christ on the last day. Let me say that again. The presence of apocalyptic language does not tell us which coming Jesus or one of the apostles is referring to. We have to look to the context of the passage to tell us the difference. And so I want to look at some examples this morning. I want to look at a couple of examples that are clearly referring to the final return of Christ at the last day. The day of the resurrection of the damned and of the just. And I want to look at a couple of passages where um, there is a strong indication of a first century fulfillment. I want to look at these passages so that we can begin to look at some of the differences and some of the clues that tend to show us whether Jesus or one of the apostles is talking about the coming of Christ on the last day or the coming of Christ in a historical judgment. And the first passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. Now, this whole passage of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul penned because there were some in the Corinthian church who were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. There is no bodily resurrection of the dead for Christians to look forward to. And Paul is making it clear that there is absolutely a bodily resurrection from the dead for Christians to look forward to. And so he says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who were Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he, puts to a, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Okay, let's make some observations here. Number one, this passage is crystal clear because it is speaking in straightforward language, And it spans all the way from the resurrection of Christ in the first century until the final resurrection on the last day when the last enemy, says Paul, which is death, will be destroyed and when Christ will deliver up a perfected kingdom to God the Father. Number two, Christ's coming here is clearly referring not to a historic coming and judgment on some nation, but to the second advent of Christ, his return on the last day to bring about the final resurrection of the just and the damned and to judge the world. Number three, there is no expectation of immediacy here. Notice that there are no time frames indicated. There are no indicators of imminent fulfillment. There are no expressions such as at hand or at the door or this generation or be ready, for you do not know the day or hour. None of that kind of language is in this passage. And number four, this passage excludes full preterism, for there is is clearly a bodily resurrection that remains, not only for Christians, but for all mankind in the future upon the second advent of Christ. Now, I will lead you to read for yourself Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 54, where Paul talks about the nature of the resurrection, he makes even more clear that the nature of our resurrection will be like Jesus' resurrection, where it is a literal bodily resurrection. Let's go now to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Now, the context here is Paul is in Athens and he is preaching to the philosophers. They have heard him speaking in public places, and they want him to declare what is this strange new teaching that they're hearing from him. Now, he's been talking to them about the nature of God, that God is divine. He's not part of the creation. He cannot be uh, expressed through idols or worshipped through idols, uh, that he has up to that point left Uh, much of mankind in ignorance to pursue uh, kind of their own thoughts. But now through Jesus Christ, he is drawing all of that to an end. And so Paul now in verses 30 and 31 is drawing his message to a conclusion. And he says this, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, let's make some observations. Number one, Paul is talking here to a Gentile audience. He's not talking to Israel. He's not speaking in any kind of special language which perhaps would have pertained to the Jews only. He's speaking to a Gentile audience. He is speaking in straightforward language. There is no apocalyptic language here. He's talking about the nature of God, the idolatry of mankind, how the times of ignorance are now over, and God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. For he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. Meaning, not some particularly nation, such as Babylon or Jerusalem, but he makes clear, all men everywhere. Who's the cosmos he's talking about here? All men everywhere. And he is now commending all men everywhere to repent. And he has appointed a day in which he will judge all men everywhere by a man whom he has ordained. Who is that man? It is the man God has designated by raising him from the dead It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the judgment Paul is talking about here is clearly referring to the final judgment on the last day, not a historic judgment of some particular nation. Number three, notice, there are no indicators of immediacy here. There are no time frames indicated, and there is no expectation of imminent fulfillment. The only application is repent. So the only, the only sense of imminence or the only sense of urgency is for each member of this audience, they don't know when they're going to die, and they don't know when their opportunity to believe and repent is going to end. But there is no imminent expectation that the judgment day is upon them. And then finally, as we saw with our first passage from 1 Corinthians 15, this passage excludes full preterism. It clearly refers to a final judgment in the future. So, looking at these two passages where we know for sure it's the second advent of Christ that's being talked about, let's pull together what we've seen that's common to both of them. Number one, straightforward language, clearly indicating that Jesus or the apostles are referring to the coming of Christ to judge the world on the last day in conjunction with the resurrection of the just in the dam. Number two, no indications of immediacy, no expectation that the predicted events would occur soon as opposed to sometime in the distant future. And number three, at least with these examples, we have no apocalyptic language. Now, we cannot say absolutely that apocalyptic language is never used to refer to the second advent of Christ, All we can say is with these clear examples, all of the language was straightforward. There was no apocalyptic language used. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of passages where we have a strong indication of fulfillment in the first century. Let's look first at Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. Here Jesus is speaking. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So here we have some confusion. We have one verse that seems to be talking about the final final judgment, And the next verse seems to be talking about a first century fulfillment. The question is, how do we sort this out? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that the first verse speaks in traditional Old Testament apocalyptic language. Remember last week, Isaiah 13, we saw God foretelling the military fall of Babylon in language that seemed to be referring to the final judgment, just like this language in Matthew 16, 27. Remember that God also called the Median army his saints. He called the army of the Medes his sanctified ones. Okay? Remember here where it refers to angels that the word angel in the Greek simply means messenger. It was a plain old everyday word that was used hundreds of times a day that simply meant messenger. Our word angel refers to a celestial being. Their word, angel, didn't. Okay, if you ordered Domino's pizza, an angel would bring it to your door. Okay. All right. So, and so, per our knowledge of the Old Testament, we know that God has used this kind of language in the past to refer to impending historical judgment on a certain language uh, on a certain nation. So we have to be open to that possibility. Once again, what does it mean? We need to recognize apocalyptic language for what it is, and we need to recognize that the presence of apocalyptic language does not tell us whether Jesus is talking about his coming on the last day or whether it's talking about a historical coming and judgment on a particular language we have to look elsewhere, we have to look to the context to know which he is referring to. And that's why he gives us here the second verse, verse 28. Notice that this verse shifts from apocalyptic language to straightforward language. And Jesus begins with the word assuredly, assuredly. Now the Greek word there is the word amen, amen. It's our word for amen, It was the most sacred way that a Jew could say before God, I swear that I am telling you the truth. That's Jesus saying, I am about to give you a corner stake, something that you can drive in the ground and know that it is correct so that you can get your bearings from it. And then he says in straightforward language, looking his disciples in the eye, there are some of you standing here, So this is not a generic you. This is a specific you referring to those into whose eyes Jesus was looking. He says, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death. He's not talking here about metaphorical death. He's talking about dying. He's talking about the separation of the soul from the body. He says, that's not going to happen until you see with your own eyes the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So the question for us here is this. Are we going to interpret the apocalyptic language in light of the plain meaning of the straightforward language, or are we going to interpret the straightforward language in the light of whatever meaning we assign to the apocalyptic language? Because the apocalyptic language, again, does not tell us what Jesus is referring to. All right. Well, I think if you really think about it, the answer is obvious. We want to take the straightforward language straightforwardly and take the apocalyptic language apocalyptically, which means there's going to be a judgment and it's going to be Jesus who's bringing it about. That's what the apocalyptic language tells us. So that when we see ordinary-looking events, like an army of one nation laying, laying siege to a city such as Jerusalem in the first century, he wants us to understand that when we watch the reports on CNN, it's not normal events. It's Jesus. It's Jesus orchestrating human events to bring about a judgment, because he... has drawn near, he is judging, and he is bringing about his purposes. That's what apocalyptic language tells us. It does not tell us in and of itself when or what Jesus is referring to. We have to look to the straightforward language for that. So we want to take the straightforward language straightforwardly, and we want to take the apocalyptic language apocalyptically. And when we do that, we see that he is dating here his coming, the coming of his kingdom, to the lifespans of those who were listening to him. That's the same kind of straightforward language we heard Paul using when he talked about the coming of Jesus on the last day. There in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no time references. There's no sense of immediacy. Here, Jesus talking, there is a time reference, the lifespans of those to whom he is speaking. And there's a sense of immediacy and imminence. This is going to happen in your lifetimes. That's what Jesus is saying. So that's how we want to take it. Take the straightforward language, straightforwardly. Take the apocalyptic language, apocalyptically. Let's look at one other example. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 34. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, says Jesus, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Verse 34. Assuredly... I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Again, what are our factors? Like in Matthew 16, we have a mix of straightforward and apocalyptic language with the straightforward language indicating a first century fulfillment. Number two, we have a sense of eminence and immediacy. And so as we learned in Matthew 16 here, we want to take the straightforward language straightforwardly and take the apocalyptic language apocalyptically. And so that would mean that we would look for a first century fulfillment because Jesus again begins with that word assuredly, amen, before God. I'm not lying to you. You can take this to the bank. I say to you, I'm speaking to you straightforwardly now. I'm not using apocalyptic symbolic language now. I'm telling you right now that this generation, this one, the one you're in, is not going to pass away until all of these things are fulfilled. Okay. Well, I want to then um, bring that together by showing you, again, there are two different comings of Christ which the New Testament teaches very clearly. And it's not all that hard to keep them straight if we keep the way the Bible uses its own language in mind. There is a coming of Christ on the last day, the day of the final resurrection of the just and the damned, the day when Jesus will put down the final enemy death, the day when Jesus will judge all mankind, when he will present to the Father a perfected kingdom. But there is another coming of Christ, another drawing near of Jesus to judge, which the New Testament talks about. That is not a bodily return of Jesus Christ, but that is a coming of Jesus Christ like it was used in the Old Testament for Jesus to bring historic judgment upon apostate Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that would reject the Messiah and would also reject 40 years of apostolic preaching and testimony of the Holy Spirit before Jesus would finally confirm that generation in its unbelief and bring historic judgment upon that generation, using the armies of Rome, just like he used the armies of the Medes in Isaiah chapter 13, using the armies of Rome in the first century to bring about his sovereign will. And we need to keep them straight. So I want to leave you with three final thoughts, three final thoughts. The first thought is this. Take comfort. Take comfort. We know the New Testament teaches these two different comings of Christ, one on the last day and one in historic judgment in the first century on apostate Jerusalem. We know the, the prophetic passages in the New Testament are referring to one or the other. And we know that they're both true. So take comfort in that. It is okay if you cannot figure out every single passage. It's okay if you can't figure out every single passage. All right? Take comfort in that. Number two, have a too hard to do folder. Have a too hard to do folder. If you don't actually have one in your file cabinet, put one in your file cabinet in your mind. You have a too hard to do folder and that's where you put passages or verses that are too hard for you to do right now. Don't feel compelled and don't let anyone force you to make a hasty interpretation of a prophetic passage. If it's too hard to do, put it in your too hard to do folder and tell your friend that you aren't sure what the passage means and you can come back to it later. Some passages can stay in the too hard to do folder for years, and that's okay. Because you know it's either talking about the final return of Christ on the last day or his coming in the first century in judgment on Jerusalem, or possibly it's talking about both. You know that, right? And it's okay for it to stay in the too hard to do folder. Number three be thankful and faithful. In 1 Corinthians 15, that long passage where Paul is talking about clearly the second advent of Christ, the final resurrection, the judgment of the world, the delivering up of the kingdom to God the Father, in that passage where he's talking about it's a transformational resurrection, it's not a metaphorical resurrection, it is a physical bodily resurrection, just like Jesus' resurrection. Here is the application that Paul gives. It's in verses 57 and 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Application number one. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Application number two, verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, notice here in his applications, there is no sense of it is the last hour or always be watching or the Antichrist is coming or 2014 is clearly the year of the rapture or the Jews are about to start rebuilding the temple on the Dome of the Rock and to resume animal ta- sacrifices or, the, or, the, or the, the Antichrist is some Italian dude who's living right now and the Roman Empire is going to be reestablished. There's none of that. In that passage. This idea that we're supposed to live and that every generation of disciples is supposed to live in a constant state of emergency so that we never build for the long term future because any day now the Lord is coming is simply not true. That is not The way the Bible speaks about the final coming of Christ and the judgment on the last day. It gives no time references. It doesn't tie it to this generation. It doesn't do that. The applications speak again the way Paul speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 15. Be thankful. Be thankful to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, be steadfast, be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor is not in vain. It's never wasted. We don't know if Jesus is going to come, in the Old Testament sense, in judgment on America. We know that America deserves that, do we not? Richly. But we know that Jesus is very merciful. We don't know what he's going to do. But even if he is, Paul's words apply to us. Be thankful, be steadfast and movable, abound in the works of the Lord. In other words, build for the long-term generational future of God's people. Build up the church. Build up God's people. Build up God's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Even if we had a special message from Jesus that says, the United States, the cosmos of the United States is coming to the end. The sun and the moon and the stars aren't going to shine anymore for the United States. You know, three or four of the churches that Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation in the first several chapters there where he's writing to historical churches in the first century and he's telling them how they're doing, Three or four of them, he threatens them with a private coming. He says, repent or I'm coming to you. Repent or I'm coming and taking your lampstand away. I'm going to take your witness away. Repent or I'm coming to you. I'm going to bring the rod. He promises three or four churches, if they don't repent, he's going to give them a private coming, which is not a good thing for any individual church. But even if we knew that Jesus was coming in judgment on our country in our lifetimes very soon, what would be the word of God to us? Seek first the kingdom of God. Be thankful and be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that somehow God will connect up our work now with the future. Somehow, some way, our work will never be in vain. In other words, be ever thankful and fruitful, building for the long-term blessing and future of God's church and God's kingdom. If you do that, you have nothing to worry about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.